Systems. I'm your host, Abigail Wright, and today I get to introduce you to my friend and saxophonist, Alan Wan, with whom I had the pleasure of performing this season at the Metropolitan Opera in Turandot. Alan was born in Tokyo, Japan, and raised in Honolulu, Hawaii. He started band in his middle school years, actually chose the saxophone not knowing what it was or naturally where it would lead. And in 1978, he moved to New York City to study with Harvey Patel, who was recognized as the preeminent orchestral saxophonist at the time, and he graduated from the Manus School of Music. While he was at Manus, he took advantage of all the great jam sessions and recording or rehearsal bands at the time, and because of that, he grew up in two distinct musical worlds, the orchestral and the jazz or commercial ones. This unique opportunity gave him so much training and so many musical opportunities in different worlds and has led to a, a completely eclectic performance schedule in his life at this moment. Because of that, he's performed in Broadway shows and Lincoln Center and Carnegie Hall in New York City, all the way to the Kennedy Center in DC and the Blue Note Clubs in Japan. He's recorded with Galt McDermott, who is the composer of Hair, Broadway cast albums, various CDs with jazz artists, and new music for modern composers. You can hear his unique sound on the New York Philharmonic's December 2014 recording of Ravel's Bolero, which is currently available on their Watch and Listen section of their website. Aside from the sax, Alan loves to fish alone or with his son, and he's looking forward to having some time eventually to get back to an old passion, reading. Alan, I'm really happy that I get to come and talk with you today. You're so much fun. And I'm just happy to sit down and chat. Thank you for oh, inviting me. No, home. thank you for asking me. It's such an honor. I'm totally unexpected. And I'm, I'm, I have to say, I'm really flattered. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have no doubt that you have so much to give. And I'm really grateful to have you here. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. So I'm curious, um, as your success as an instrumentalist, was there a defining moment that led to it, or was it a series of events? I think it was more a series of events. Um, it's, it's, it's always a different level. The way I see my progression in my life at this point, um, because you asked this question, it's offered me the opportunity to go back in time and to look at um, to look at various steps that happened leading up to this current time. Um, I start with my best buddy who said to me in the eighth grade, this is starting the second year of saxophone playing, he said, hey, we should audition him so we can play with the, the ninth grade band, the, the advanced <laughs> band. I said, what's the advanced band? I was really dumb. <laughs> and he said, oh, we got to play, you know, like cool music. I said, really? I said, yeah, let's audition. So I said, okay, I didn't know what audition meant. I didn't know what practicing meant. I just liked to play. So I went in and took my audition, and the band director said, well, Juan, he called us all by our last names, Juan, <laughs> if you take, uh, that was pretty good, but uh, I'll tell you what, if you want to play in the advanced band, um, if you take private lessons, I'll let you play in the advanced band. I was like, take lessons? I said, how much is that going to cost? He says, well, he told me a figure. And I thought it was exorbitant. So I went home. Good kid. Yeah. I went home. I said, I have to ask my dad. So I went home. And I was nervous for about maybe three or four days. And finally, they looked at me and said, what's the matter with you? And I said, well, 
Mr. Kanaya, the band director, said to me, I could play in the advanced band, but I have to take private lessons. I think they're kind of expensive. So my father says to me, well, how expensive are they? I think it's like $2.75 for a half an hour. And my father looks at me and says, I think we can afford that. I said, really? He says, yeah. So I started taking lessons. And that first teacher really helped shape my philosophy, uh, gave me a tremendous boost to my very fragile ego. Aww. Oh, he was fantastic. I still revere him to this day. And he gave me three wonderful pieces of advice. Uh, but I have to say, as far as steps, that was the first step. And then from there, he offered me these, these three valuable pieces of advice. Um, one was learn how to type, learn to meditate, mm. and you're going to love the last one, learn a martial art. Huh. There you go. And I thought about that. And he didn't give me an explanation. He says, you're going to have to figure out why I said these things to you. Well, I did two of three. <laughs> I'm a horrible typer. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you get along. Nobody gets around without it these days. Yeah, I know. But it's like a mean two-finger kind of technique. But um, Dictation software. Oh, goodness. So, yeah, that's how far behind the times I am. I haven't even gotten there yet. But that was the first step for me. I have to say that was the first step of taking lessons and being with a teacher who saw a potential and nurtured it. That was fantastic. That that really that really took me I think I was with him for three years or two years, three years. And then he told me, I've taught you everything I know. You need to move on to another teacher, which I was devastated. But most teachers won't tell you that. Of course. I, great. No, no, and I, that's why I love him even more. Because he showed me, he says, I can't teach you anymore. You need to go study with someone else. Well, I did find another teacher. And I just I had a series of wonderful teachers that brought me to many, many different levels. As far as success, um, I feel very fortunate to be doing as much as I am, I never imagined that I would be doing what I'm doing. I, it just, and because as you get older, you realize certain things are, well, playing with a major symphony orchestra, I don't, no, it's, you gotta be really good to do that. Mm. You know, didn't stop me from practicing, but um, it was, not something that I had on my radar. <laughs> it was okay, yeah, but probably not, you know. So as far as for that question, it was a series of events that led to my current uh, work status and if you want to call it success. It's a series of events, of very fortunate events for myself. Nice. We're lucky. <laughs> yes, we are. Yeah. I consider myself extremely fortunate. Me too. Was your career mostly by your own design, or did things just kind of fall into place for you? I'll answer that by, by saying, uh, quoting from a great jazz saxophonist who was like a crazy uncle of mine. His name is Arnie Lawrence. Arnie Lawrence, uh, I consider him jazz royalty. He grew up in Brooklyn, a Brooklyn Jew. Um, 
who was basically self-taught on the saxophone, had Sonny Rollins, Dizzy Gillespie, Stan Getz, all by first name. I mean, this guy was the real deal. Um, he started the new school jazz. Nice. Oh, he was the cat and very unconventional in his way. Well, when he passed away, um, I went to his memorial and they were printed on the back of, uh, uh, of the program and it said Arneisms. And one of, Arnie, one of the Arneisms that I really loved was he said, never be afraid of making a mistake because <laughs> your mistake is probably better than your first intention anyway. <laughs> so I've, I've always held on to that, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, as a kid, as you know, as I progressed in my playing and I got technically more proficient, I, you know, gained some kind of some accolades among my peers and then amongst teachers. Um, it, you know, I thought, wow, it'd be great to do this or do that. But ultimately, life showed me something completely different. And I had to learn how to accept that. Um, not that I must, I'm. I'm a set in stone kind of person, but I was throwing a lot of curveballs after I moved to New York. And I, first, my plan was not to come to New York immediately. Mm -hmm. My plan was originally to go to LA and study at the, uh, well, Harvey at the time was the instructor at USC. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. um, from the late 60s into uh, until 78 when he left. And uh, I had a full. I had been accepted to the school of music. I had a full scholarship, um, and I had uh, housing, and on top of which I also had my favorite aunt and uncle who lived in California, in LA. So I was going to be with family. It was going to be cool. I mean, you know. And Harvey calls me in April before that of the, of of seventy eight and says, uh, "Look, I have to tell you, I'm not going to be at USC this fall." I'm going to be at a small college called Manus in New York City. I'd like you to be my student there. But there's no scholarship. There's no housing. So, I mean, talk about, you know, plans being blown out of the water completely because, you know, my family didn't have any money. And to go to New York, Oof. um, that was a rough move for my parents. And I didn't realize how rough it would be for me because I'm just, you know, I'm a happy idiot. <laughs> you know, just you know, just being very naive about everything. You know, I was very immature. I still am very much immature, but I was really immature at that time. I was 20 years old and barely knew how to tie my shoes. So, you know, has life dictated my career in certain ways, yeah. I mean, the circumstances have come about that I could have not foreseen. And I had opportunities and different things happen in my life that were, that really, in one way or another, really shaped the way my career kind of traveled. I won't take any of it back. I, I, I'd relive it and I'd relive it the same way. I have to. It's my life. It's what has made and enriched my life has made my personal experiences shape who I am, helped to shape who I am, gave me character, characters to etch, to etch into oneself. The wrinkles, the whatever on my face, you know, I mean, that's, it, those are the etchings of my life.
and I accept it. That's beautiful. It's reality. <laughs> so do you play any other instruments? Being on Broadway, um, the more instruments you play well, I emphasize well, uh, will garner you more uh, work. So I had always been interested from a very early age from when I started. I was always interested in the flute and the clarinet and my girlfriend at the time, when I was in the ninth grade, was an oboe player. I was like, wow, let me try the oboe. Wow, this is terrible. Yeah. I don't think I'll play that. <laughs> Good choice, Alan. Um, so I ended up playing all the flutes. Um, uh, I play, obviously, all the saxophones, sopranos, the baritones. So that's four of them. Uh, B-flat clarinet, which is the clarinet most people understand, and the bass clarinet, which looks like a long black saxophone. And in the later years, I picked up the bassoon because broad, I saw Broadway moving in another direction and the people who I work with, who are my really close colleagues and friends, advised me to pick up bassoon. And it helped me in the last few years of my career before I gave it up. You must be very good at tuning. Uh, yes. <laughs> That's, I think most of the time, I think I work on tuning. Because it's, you know, if you can't play in tune, I, that's, you have to play in tune and in time. Um, volume is sort of secondary. It doesn't matter as much. But the first two, tuning and playing in time, are very important. If you can't do those two things, forget it. You're worthless as a musician. Right I mean, worthless as a commercial musician. Yeah. Because it's, at least you have to be able to do those two things. Well, bassoons are a little harder to tune, right? Yes. It's very hard. <laughs> Good for you for learning it. It's a work in progress. Um, I don't play it as seriously anymore, but I practice it as seriously uh, because I just enjoy it. It's a very strange, uh, even my bassoon teacher says, yeah, it kind of grows into a, like, a strange, pleasurable perversion or something. <laughs> because it's so awkward because there are all these thumb positions that you have to use. It, there's, it's just an incredibly archaic instrument that they never really modernized, but it works. Wow. Yeah. So. Do you imagine yourself retiring at any point? For what I currently do, yes. Um, there is a shelf life. Uh, I've seen glimpses of it already. So I'm sort of planning my obsolescence from the New York scene because I feel as though, it, I think this is part of the very egotistical side of myself. Uh, which I totally recognize and embrace. Um, I don't want to be asked to leave. I want to say, I'm leaving while I can still play. Here are my replacements. Wow. I consider these people. Because I, I've only wanted to have my instrument, the saxophone, because I'm primarily a saxophonist. I only wanted the saxophone to be represented well. And so my whole career, my whole, I've been in New York for almost 40 years, um, over 45 years in playing. I just wanted it to be represented well. That's, I didn't care if it was me. I, I would, I preferred it to be me at times, but if I heard something great, I said, wow, that's it. You know, it's, it's being represented. That's, that's what it should sound like. And that's what I want to leave this career of my whatever it is. I assume it'll be a little while. Mm. 
I won't say how soon, but it's soon. Wow, good yeah. for you. Mm-hmm. So do you have any goals for your retirement? Oh, absolutely. I'm never going to stop playing. Um, but I want to get into more teaching. Um, uh, I have a foundation that I'm working on, a nonprofit foundation that I'm working on with two other my buddies. And we're all from Hawaii. We've all gone away. And we've all gained these wonderful experiences. And what we want to do is that we want to give back to the, to the especially to the um, disadvantaged youth in Hawaii. Because, I mean, would I love to do it all over the United States? Absolutely. But I can't save everybody. But I can hopefully save a couple of people in Hawaii. Give the kids at least an inkling of what working hard will do for you. Having a commitment. Keeping, you know, keeping your nose clean. Showing up for classes. Um, and just you just keep doing it, you know. I don't expect them to become musicians necessarily or artists, but if they could gain from the experience of playing music on a on a very high level, is that they would see a side of themselves that said, "I can do whatever I want to do. I just have to believe that it's it's in me. That's what I'm trying to develop." Because it, you know, yes, we do need more artists. I, I, I would love for the world to be filled with more artists, people who are more open-minded, who see up, who see and think outside of the box. Because I think most of us do, as artists, yeah. we we kind of see things in another way. We turn the boxes around and look under and on top, and you know, from all these weird angles, and it gives us kind of a different view on and take on life. And that's what I want to offer these kids in Hawaii because I see with with the way government has been going and, and it's just my personal crusade and I have two other buddies who believe, really believe in this so that's that's really my long-term plan I've done what I come to do in New York I'm very happy and I feel very fortunate to have done it um, I'll continue to do it as long as I can but I do have an end game to what I do in New York that's awesome Alan it's reality. I know we talked about Hawaii a little bit. Um, I know it's very different from the mainland U.S. How did growing up in Hawaii influence you in terms of your success and happiness? Being surrounded by natural beauty, uh, you can't avoid it in Hawaii. There are rainbows every day. Every day. Every day. <laughs> Wherever you go. I mean, it's just, it's a natural part of, you know, when people say rainbows, they go, and they get excited, they go, what's the big deal? <laughs> Hawaii, it's every day. Yeah. You know, I turn around and where my parents live, I look up into the valley, there's a rainbow. <laughs> um, I write about, I wrote a little bit about this um, on my website. And what shaped me was the water. Because when I was a kid, I was a real water person, fishing. But... Um, I always enjoyed the, the solitary sports. I wasn't a good team guy just because I'm not, not I have horrible hand-eye coordination. I'm just like the most untalented sports guy and male in my father's family. I'm really? so like a disgrace, yeah. I can't catch or hit a ball. Horrible. But I could surf, I could spearfish. Um you know, I was pretty good when I was a kid. You know, not at all. I can't spear fit like that. It's it's too physically hard. You know, I'm I'm just 
not in that kind of shape anymore. But being in the water, I don't necessarily need to catch anything. I just enjoy sticking my head under and like looking at all the things that are swimming by or growing. And it just makes me happy to see things that I saw when I was a kid still there, which is not necessarily the case anymore. You know, but anyway, that's, that's taken away from your original question. Um, hiking in the mountains, uh, moving through bamboo forests and hearing, you know, the wind knocking the bamboo together and it makes a certain kind of percussive kind of chorus. It's very cool, you know, watching clouds move by as you're standing on top of, you know, volcanic mountains and looking over the Tully, you know, and just seeing the vistas, um, the fact that the water is never the same day to day. You can never expect it to be the same. It's always different. It's always changing, you know. But the consistent thing about Hawaii is that it's beautiful, very forgiving. Um, we don't forget. Those are two different things. Forgiving and forgetting, two different things. We can forgive, but we never forget. Um, so I was brought up with that concept um, because I was brought up in well, you could almost say a multicultural home. Yes, I'm all Asian, but my father's Korean, born and raised in Hawaii. My mother is Jap was a Japanese national. She is now a naturalized citizen of the United States. But those two cultures completely clashed, especially at the time that they met. I mean, World War II is a perfect example. The Japanese, um, and they still continue to sort of treat the Koreans not very well. Um, so there should have been a cultural issue between my parents, but there wasn't. The fact that my father's Korean side, of, my Korean side of my family, my father's side of the family, all married outside of the Korean. Nobody married a Korean. They married Caucasians or Japanese or whatever. Now our our bloodlines run to Spanish, uh, Jewish. Um, Oh goodness, Italians. I mean, we're busy as French, you know. Um, and that's your wife. And that's my wife. Yes, the one who keeps me in line, keeps <laughs> me sane. Um, so, how did Hawaii shape me? I think it gave me an openness and a little bit more a capacity to hold more things and to be more tolerant. Because we had to be growing up. We, there were too many cultures. And I never, there was never anything odd to me. Like, I didn't see really colors. It was just, oh, you look a little different, but you eat different food. That was more of a different thing. Oh, you sound a little different, but it was more a cultural thing about um, food because we're so centered around food in Hawaii. Where you get together for a party and you'll have, like Thanksgiving, you have the traditional turkey, You'll have cranberry sauce. Then you'll have sushi. <laughs> you'll have some other weird Japanese dish. You'll have Chinese noodles, stir fry. Um, you'll have raw fish. It's just, if there are Filipinos around, you'll have some kind of Filipino. It's just a smorgasbord. And, but it was normal. This is what we ate. I mean, so coming here, it was just like, yeah, none of this really surprises me, except for maybe sometimes a lack of diversity. 
you know, within certain groups, there's a little lack of, you know, people tend to sort of gather in their own ethnic groups, not that we did it, but it was, it's a little bit more tight here than it was for me growing up. In, in New York, yeah. Yeah, in New York, it's, you know, and, but I wouldn't trade being in New York for anything because as I got out and experienced more, um, boy, you know, talk about exposure to cultures. But again, coming back to Hawaii, the experience of growing up in Hawaii, um, and I think this is, this is now a word that's not looked upon very favorably, but it taught us to be liberals. We're more tolerant. We're just more accepting of certain things. We may disagree with you, but we'll at least sit down and listen to you. And there's not a, a hard judgment call on anything, unless it's really egregious. You know, unless you do something really nasty, you know, you hurt someone, well, that's not right. You just don't, <laughs> not unless you have good cause. I mean, and what is the just cause for that? You know, it had to be something really nasty. Um, but for the most part, the local people were really open. And we, as kids, grew up in this environment. And what about your Korean and Japanese culture? Did they also influence you while you were growing up there? Oh, greatly. Uh, work ethic. Um, I, it was ingrained for me from when I was a child that you will work hard. Um, but your accomplishments are never to be taken overly seriously and never to really be boasting about them because there's always more to gain. You always more to learn about what you're doing. Uh, it's kept me humble um, my whole life. It still does. I mean, no matter where I play, and I've been fortunate to play in a lot of great places with great ensemble, I know how much I have to go. And I won't get there, I know. My life, it's, I won't live as many years as I've been living now. And that's okay. But I'll keep trying, but I know I'll never get there. It's okay. That's amazing. We mentioned before in your introduction your eclectic performance schedule. I know you're a very busy man between practicing and performing. How do you maintain your outside life during the busy seasons? I have a very understanding wife. <laughs> it's the truth, though. I mean, it really helps to have a partner, someone, your, your best friend, who really gets what you do and supports you, as I support her in her whatever she needs to do. She needs to be at work and she'd give me a call. She's a lot better than I am about that. She says, look, I know I was supposed to be home now and it's six o'clock, but an emergency came in. I may have to stay till 7.38. Is that okay? I said, it's fine. The thing is I'll feed the kid. And we have a teenager and I'll feed him and make sure that he eats earlier so it doesn't interrupt his schedule. But it really, I can't tell you how much I never thought being married would have these kinds of uh, almost perks, I guess, in a way. Having a really wonderful partner who really does get it. I mean, not that she understands all the intricacies of what I have to do or the music or anything, although she does get a lot of that. She just understands that this is my life and I'm pursuing it with as much passion and commitment as she pursues her own career. And she respects that. So it makes my job easier. 
I know as, as an orchestral musician established in your community, I'm sure you get lots of work through word of mouth. Um, are you past that point where you, you feel like you need to hustle for your next gig? Do you ever really get past that point? Well, I always wonder if I'm going to be good enough. Um, I, I don't worry about hustling as much as I worry about being prepared for the call. Um, if the call should come in, am I good enough to do it? Hmm. Um, my Asian background, the way I was personally brought up with an immigrant mother and a father who was one step away from being an immigrant, he was basically you know, only a second generation. His parents came from Korea. Um, taught me to work hard, to be humble, um, that there was always more to do. Just because you did one job and you did it well, that didn't mean that you could slough off or that you had it made in the shade. You had to improve on some aspect of your playing or your personal life. Um, so do I worry about hustling? No, it's more the self-conscious aspect of will I be good enough to will I be good enough for the job? Will I be prepared enough? Will I be able to give my employer what they're seeking? Um, my teacher Harvey Patel um, was probably the hardest of all my teachers but his insistence on playing in tune, playing with playing with a consistency of sound, understanding what great singers do, how you hold the line, diction, clarity of the line, use of vibrato or the lack of use of vibrato, um, how do you change colors, how do you blend with your section mates and whatnot. These are all the things that he brought to my attention and insisted that I keep working on them. I think that's what made me different in New York. Um, that's what I consistently work on. I know I'm never going to get to the point of being as good as my colleagues in any of these great ensembles I play. It's just because there's just not enough time left in my life. Um, somebody probably will. Some young guy who's probably as crazy as I am <laughs> with enough energy, you know, will probably get there and will do a bang-up job of it. Um, I consider myself just a stepping stone. I'm an extension of my teacher, and hopefully some kid's going to use me as a stepping stone to the next level. Uh, because the saxophone is not looked upon as a serious instrument in the orchestra. You know, we're an odd instrument. We're not supposed to be able to play in tune or blend or any of these things. And you know, my teacher taught me completely the opposite. He said, we need to establish a tradition, and you need to be prepared. That's so great. it's really about being prepared. I spent more time practicing and, and thinking, this is not good enough. I need to make this better, rather than picking up the phone and saying, hey, you know, blah, 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 I'm free on Saturday. It's like, like I'm not, I'm free on Saturday, but I'm not good enough to do your job yet. I need to practice for eight or ten more hours. <laughs> oh, goodness. Um, what does freelancing bring to your life that you wouldn't get in a nine-to-five environment or even a more stable orchestral position or do you do you long for a more stable life or I did and I got it through Broadway uh, when I did this several long-running shows that I did um, 
I enjoy freelancing because of the different, it, there's always a different challenge and it's very in your face. The challenge is always, it's always in your face. When you have, for me, when I had a regular job, I understood what the flow, I always, by the way, I, I'm referring when I mean flow, I mean like water because my early experiences were going to the beach and looking at the water, watching the waves, thinking, okay, current's moving left to right or right to left today. It's moving out faster. This is the rip. Oh, this is where it's coming in. All oh, rocks are exposed. The tide is low today. You know, these different things. So my analogy to being a freelancer is understanding what the flow of the ensemble is for the day and to try and figure out how to fit into that flow. Um, I'm not always successful <laughs> because it's tough. You know that. You know when you, it's like, hey Abigail, you know I got a gig for you, but I need a substitute for this. Can you do it? It's like, yeah, sure. And you walk in there and go, whoa, check out this flow. You know, either running a thousand million miles a second, or it's like slogging through molasses. Yeah. You never know what to expect, it's but true. you got to be prepared for it. Um, but that's the aspect of freelancing that I really enjoy. Um, I know that there are politics involved in a long-term, long-standing job. Uh, a lot of my colleagues who are players in major symphony orchestras tell me and confess to me how challenging it can be to be in an environment like that. That's not always peaches and cream, yeah. the personality conflicts, which is natural. I mean, we're human beings, we're not machines. Sure. So I don't miss that aspect. I get to come in and hopefully do a good job and at the end go, bye, nice seeing you guys, have a nice holiday, and I go home, <laughs> you know, and, you know, hang out with the kid and the wife and have fun that way. Um, I enjoy having more free time with my family, although I do spend a lot of my time practicing when they're home. I try not to do as much practicing. I try to get it done before they show up. Wow. So that's what I enjoy about freelancing as opposed to uh, being permanent member of an orchestra. That's cool. So are there any habits or traits that you would attribute to your success and happiness? Rituals. Rituals. Um, I'm a big follower and believer of Carl Jung. Um, consequently, Joseph Campbell, Power of Myth. Uh, that series that he did with uh, Bill Moyers. Um, Fantastic. This was done just before Joseph Campbell passed away. Okay. It was just unbelievable that they got this all in. Um, in one of the episodes, Joseph Campbell speaks about the lack of rituals for today's youth. And how that equates is that he says, our youth are lost because they have no coming-of-age rituals. I mean, the Jewish faith has their bar or bat mitzvahs, which is, I think, is absolutely wonderful. The Catholic Church has their, you know, um, not only their, well, baptism, of course, but that runs through all Christianity. But they have certain things like um, communion. Communion, exactly. Thank you. I mean, these are rituals. You know, whether you agree with a religious, you know, philosophy or not, these are rituals that have helped humans. I'll be very politically incorrect, behave. Because being a father and having a child and looking at this child when the child came out, yeah, he's smart, but he's a beast. He's an animal. He needs to be taught 
morals. He needs to be taught not to hit another kid just because the kid wanted to play with his toys. We need to be taught these things. We need to be taught morality. It doesn't, it's not instinctual. Rituals, I believe, were designed by much more intelligent people at the time to rein in these very animal kind of desires that naturally occur in all human beings. We are animals. So for me, success for me, rituals. Um, I go back to my meditation practice, which is 40 years, um, martial arts, um, which really helps my head space out a lot because you can't be thinking about um, dinner or paying a bill when someone's throwing you or you have or you're attacking somebody because you're going to get hurt, yeah. and that's not the intention of the martial art that I practice, which is Aikido. It's not the intention, but if you're not focused, you're going to get hurt. So. What does that particular ritual do? It brings me into the moment. What does my meditational practice do? It helps me to maintain presence in the moment. Am I good at it? No. Every day I'm a beginner. That's also very humbling. It shows me that you will probably never attain what they call enlightenment. But that's okay because it's a daily practice for you to come into the moment, be in the moment. To be successful at what I do, a ritual, okay. Rituals that I have for heavy performance schedules. Get up in the morning, make sure my family's taken care of. When everyone is out the door and the house is quiet, I'll practice. I'll have a good breakfast first and then I'll practice for two or three hours. Good warm up, practice what I have to practice, stop at lunch, have a little bite to eat, take a short nap. Half an hour, 45 minutes, hour if I can't afford it. And then shower, get ready, go out the door to the performance. Then I'm ready. But it's, it's a ritual that I go through all the time. I have to. It's, it's, part of what, it's part of what keeps me calm. It keeps me relaxed. It's, it doesn't, as I get older, I see how much, how valuable my rituals are. Because I perform better when I'm relaxed. When I know that I've already done my warm-up, that I know this particular part that's coming up in the piece that I'm playing. That I'm not thinking about a million things. What's the fingering? Am I going to be out of tune? Blah, blah, blah. It's like, no. Boom. You're in the moment. You've already done this. Breathe in and breathe out. And the breath out is when it happens. Ritual. That's great. Uh, there's a new question I've been asking that I really like. If there were one thing that you could have the world understand differently, what would it be? It'd be tolerance. I mean, not, not again, not for the egregious things that, you know, I, I don't believe war is necessary at all. Because too many innocent people die. I'm sorry. I'm really... I guess, am I a pacifist? No, I don't think so, because I recognize in myself the the aggressive aspects of myself that's what keeps me going in my career how do you practice every day how do you keep that going it, it, it's aggression you have to recognize it but to the point where you take someone's life no i'm sorry i i really believe in, in 
the great philosophers and the great minds who said that war is never an option. Tolerance. Listen. Listen. Try to reflect back on your own experiences. If they were hurtful experiences, why were they hurtful? What part of you did they hurt? And how can you go into that part and repair it? Come to terms with it. We're all broken. Every single one of us is broken. So how do we repair it? No one can repair it but yourself. No politician is going to repair it. No God is going to repair it. I'm sorry. It's very politically incorrect, but it's true. God, the Dalai Lama apparently said, God is not going to fix this situation. We have to fix our own situation. That's what I believe. That's what I try to do every day. Am I successful? No, not always. But I try. And I'd, I'd like to see more people try and just really look at the whole scope of things that are happening. Try. Look at it. There's, there's too much violence. It's, it's, it's too easy of an answer. I, I, I can't accept that. Not, not as one artist speaking to another artist. Yeah. It's, it's, the answer is too easy. Why does it have to be violence? Yeah. So, Alan, do you have any last advice for us? Be here now. Stay in the moment. Ram Das. You know? Be here now. Stay in the moment. It took me a long time to figure that one out because I'm slow. But, yeah, be in the moment. Whatever it, you know, whatever method it takes, meditation or running or exercising or just being with a loved one and not looking at your devices or something, but just... Be in the moment. I think being in the moment probably will help a lot of situations. I'm not saying it's a cure-all, but I think it would probably help calm a lot of the anxiety that people are currently feeling. Uh, Because I really do feel it's collective. What we are currently going through in the world is collective. Was it the... Oh, goodness, who said this one? He said, this is the only place we live, is this planet. Hmm. We haven't learned to go to another planet. That, that's not an option. <laughs> it won't be an option in my time, I right. can tell you that. Um, so we have to learn how to live together, how to be here. Be here now. And, and walk with, an op- with open eyes and, and allow yourself to be vulnerable. As performers, we have to be vulnerable because it's the only way that we can give convincing performances. I think we can do that in real life. If we're vulnerable, then we allow other people to come into our space, to come into our little orbits, even if they're shielded. And consider for a moment where these other people are coming from, that they suffer, that they, they want to be, they want to be happy. They want to, they want to have happiness in their own life, but also too, that they suffer. And we shouldn't prolong someone's suffering if we if we can prevent it. Alan, thank you so much for inviting me to your beautiful home and inviting me into your your spirit uh, today and just letting us all benefit from the wisdom that you have. Well, if you can benefit from it, that's great. Thank you for asking me. It's yeah. really been an honor. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you so much for watching The Piece of Persistence. 
it's really true that every share, every review, and every comment goes a really long way in helping us to spread the piece of persistence. So do us a favor and give us some of your love with a review or a rating or share us with a friend today. And if you like today's episode, you can always hear more by looking on iTunes for the piece of persistence or your favorite podcast app. Thanks, as always, for tuning in, liking us on Facebook, and subscribing to find more ways to balance the happiness and success in your life. But if we forget what really makes us sing and dance at night, it's the other people around and our dreams that lift us up.